Good, I want you to turn to the book of Philemon. And I'm going to give you a lot of time to find it. First thing I want to say this morning is thank you. Thank you for giving me this seven-week break. It was well-timed. It was much needed. The gift of this break says a lot about this church, and I hope that it will serve uh, as an encouragement to some other area churches as to how to love and care for their pastors well. I know personally some other pastors who need a break like this, um, but I don't know... I don't know that that there are a lot of churches that will give a break like this. So I want to say thank you for that. Secondly, I want to say thank you for really letting me have this break. I only got one church-related business call during the seven weeks I was gone, and it came at 4 a.m. one morning from the fire alarm monitoring company. Um, So somebody take a note about that. If this ever happens again, someone needs to let the fire alarm company know what you all knew not to call me. (laughs) Take a note. I want to say thank you to Joe and to Matt, carrying the lion's share of the burden these last seven weeks. You guys did a good job from everything I heard. You did a good job. I trust you guys completely to handle that and did well. I'm thankful for you. And I think I speak on behalf of the rest of the body when I say that we are thankful to God for you and we are thankful to you for your faithfulness and service here. I want to, yeah, do that. Be careful, but do it. I want to say thank you to Jason, Ryan, Josh, Bailey, and all the other music folks who carried us along without missing a beat. That's the last time I get to use that pun for a while. Got some good mileage out of that one, though. Um, Music carried along just fine, and I'm thankful for all you guys and all your help with that. I want to say thank you to the eight, eight other guys who preached the word at evening services. I trust that was a good thing for them. I trust it was a good thing for you, and I praise the Lord um, that that there are eight guys. And and the reality is there are 18 or 80 more guys who could have done that here. And, And that is a testament to God's faithfulness to this place. Thank you to you guys, and I want to say thankful. thank you to all of you for the special ways you pitched in, helped out, stepped up. I want to say thank you for continuing to come, to, to be here. Um, it's one of the things we talked about right before I, I left was that don't, don't stop coming to church. And praise the Lord, you did not, and, and uh, that, that's an encouragement to me in a big way. Second thing I want to say before we get to Philemon is, is I want to tell you that I thoroughly enjoyed my time away. Uh, I completed some projects that were that were on a list that I had made, and I knocked those things out way faster than I expected. Like within the first week, those were all done, and I was twiddling my thumbs looking for something to do. I also rested. Um, there were a few days when I did absolutely nothing, and it was wonderful. Uh, I played a lot. Uh, Laura and I traveled. Our family traveled. We adventured. We ran. We biked. We fished. We made some great memories. It, it, was, it was a lot of fun. That's what I've told a lot of people today when they've asked how it went. I said we had a lot of fun. And I read and thought and planned. And you'll be hearing more about that over the next few weeks. It's the second thing. Third thing is I want to tell you that this is a great church. First Baptist Church Harrisburg is a great church. We visited several good churches in our region during the break, churches uh, for which I am thankful, pastors to whom I am thankful, but there was not a single time in all of those weeks when I felt jealous of what they had going on there. 
Never once did I even come close to thinking, I'd rather go to church here. Never did I think, man, we're dropping the ball back at home. Sometimes I believe you don't see clearly how good things are until you step away for a bit. And I see even more clearly now that this is a great church doing great work. And I am glad, glad, and proud to be your pastor. And I look forward to what God has in store for us in this next season. So let's trust him to sustain us, to grow us, to use us for his glory and for the growth of his kingdom. First Baptist Church is a great church. Now, having said all that, let's get started with a new study today. This one's going to last roughly six weeks, maybe eight weeks. We'll see how it goes. It'll get us through most of the rest of the summer. When we moved up here uh, to serve as your pastor a little over 10 years ago, I started preaching through this very short New Testament letter of Philemon. Since today marks a little bit of a fresh start, I thought it might be good to go back to where it all began. Philemon, or however you want to say his name, uh, is an interesting little book in the New Testament. It's quite different from anything else in the New Testament, especially anything else written by the Apostle Paul. In studying Paul's other letters, we, we may come to know Paul as a bold, direct, even sometimes con- confrontational leader who is always ready for a good debate or even a fight. Some might even say he lacks tact. He might not be a real friendly guy. You might get the impression from some of his other letters that you would not enjoy having a cup of coffee with the Apostle Paul. Well, I think this letter is going to show us a different side of Paul as he engages with a great deal of tenderness, compassion, gentleness, and tact. What is a very difficult situation. This letter has a very personal and gentle tone to it. This letter also stands out from Paul's other letters because it lacks doctrinal or theological explanation. In this letter, Paul does not articulate the gospel. He does not speak of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He doesn't speak of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Rather, in this letter, he focuses on the impact of the gospel on those who believe it, those who have been changed by God's power and grace through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This letter, to sum it up, is more about application of the gospel rather than articulation of the gospel. He assumes the gospel here and applies it to the relationship between Philemon, Onesimus, and himself. As we study this letter, we will see that the gospel changes everything. It changes everything within us. God, by his grace through the gospel, gives us a new heart, a new life, a new mind that will inevitably, necessarily, lead to new living, new thinking, new behavior. The gospel changes everything within us. By God's grace, we become new creatures. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old is gone. Look, new things have come. The gospel changes everything within us, and it changes everything between us. The gospel doesn't just impact our relationship with God, bringing peace where there was enmity between us and him. It changes our relationships with each other, breaking down walls that would divide us and bringing us together in partnership, in fellowship, in intimacy. It's worth noting here that this letter to Philemon traveled by the hand of Onesimus along with another letter to the church in Colossae. 
That's what we know as Colossians. While there's not much gospel articulation in a letter we're going to study in Philemon, there is plenty of gospel articulation in Colossians, the letter that traveled with Philemon back to Colossae. So I want us to look at some of the gospel highlights in Colossians before we dive into Philemon. So turn back to Colossians. Keep a marker in Philemon. And turn to Colossians chapter 1. Did you find Philemon? It's easy to miss. It's just like half a page. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to kind of fly through the whole letter here, seeing some highlights, and we'll start in verse 9. Listen to the gospel substance here. Series reading it for me. Chapter 1, verse 9 says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, Yet he has now reconciled you in the fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Some serious gospel substance there, right? Some serious gospel articulation there. Skip down to um, chapter 2, verse 1. God's word says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for all those who are in Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Skip down to verse 13 of chapter 2. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. 
and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Yes, right? All of this that was against us, all of this that was hostile toward, all of this certificate of debt that we have owed, it's taken out of the way. How? It was nailed to the cross. I think last week you sang about that. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. And What's the response? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Keep reading in chapter uh, 3, starting in verse 9. Chapter 3, verse 9. He says, do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, And have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave and free man. But Christ is all and in all. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Now remember that little bit about just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you should one another, because that is really the heart of the letter to Philemon. Philemon has been wronged by his slave Onesimus, and Paul is writing to him in the context of his forgiveness to be forgiving. And he speaks the same thing in the companion letter of Colossians. One other interesting note before we move back to Philemon. Look at chapter 4, verse 7. You're going to see that this letter and Philemon were carried by the hand of Onesimus back to Colossae and Philemon. Chapter 4, verse 7 says, As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. Lots of gospel articulation in Colossians. And while there's not any in Philemon, these two letters were traveling together. It's not as if Paul, just out of the blue, writes this letter to Philemon, giving him instructions about how to relate to Onesimus. No, it's it's accompanied by the gospel truth that informs and impacts all of this. So as much as we're going to study Philemon, we're not going to remove our study of Philemon from the content of the gospel. That we are sinners who deserve only judgment and wrath from a righteous God for our sins. And that Christ stepped in and died for sinners. And that only by faith in Christ, in who he is and what he has done, can we be reconciled to God. And salvation comes by grace as a gift through faith in Christ. We're not going to be removed from that as we talk through Philemon. So don't forget it. I need to give you a little bit of a high-altitude flyover and and some of the backstory of Philemon so that you understand it when we read it in just a minute. Now, I'll admit that there's some debate about some of the particulars of what I'm going to share with you. I'll not take the time to outline and explain all the other options, but I'm going to give you in the next few minutes what I think is the most likely scenario that fills in the gaps that the text leaves. When we read Philemon, 
And when, even when we read it in conjunction with Colossians, there are some gaps that, that, that beg some questions that we want to see filled in. And I'm going to try to explain what I think is the most feasible way to fill those gaps in. So first thing you need to know is about Philemon. Philemon, the recipient of this letter, was a wealthy and influential follower of Jesus in Colossae. He was converted to faith in Christ under Paul's ministry, probably while Paul was preaching relatively close to Colossae in Ephesus for about three years. Along with his wife, I believe his wife is Aphia, and their son Archippus, the two other recipients, individual recipients of the letter, with his family, he hosted a church, the church in Colossae, in his home. So what we see when we look at Philemon and his family is a picture of a family that is serving Christ together. It's a picture of a trusted family who is leading God's people in Colossae. Philemon had a slave whose name was Onesimus. Now I'll admit right off the bat that there's a tension there. I just painted a picture of Philemon as a trusted, faithful servant of the Lord leading the church in Colossae. And the next thing I told you about him is that he had a slave. That doesn't seem to jive really well, does it? No, it doesn't. doesn't jive really well. And so we're going to have to deal with that tension, but we're going to deal with it as we study the letter, not all today. We're not going to talk about why Paul doesn't directly attack the institution of slavery in this letter. Why Paul seems to tiptoe around some things that we would almost expect him to dive right into. We'll talk about that as we move through the letter, but I want to acknowledge it right up front. Philemon has a slave whose name was Onesimus. His name literally means useful, but he had proven for some time to be far from useful. And to make matters worse, he ran away. And he maybe even stole something before he left in the process. We don't get much detail about what all happened when he went away and in what way he wronged Philemon when he went away. But there are some hints in the text that would lead us to believe that he likely stole something as he was leaving. Now, what you need to understand is that a runaway slave who possibly stole something as he ran away away, is in big trouble. If such a slave was caught and returned to his master, he would at least be severely beaten. It's more likely, however, that such a slave would be crucified crucified as punishment for his actions and as a deterrent to others who might be tempted to run away. Onesimus, in other words, is in big trouble. So he ran a long way because that's what you do when you're in big trouble, right? You don't just run around the block. You run as far away as you can get. And I believe Onesimus providentially came into contact with Paul while he was imprisoned in Rome. Paul is imprisoned in Rome. Onesimus runs as far away from Philemon as he can get and ends up in Rome, which is about 1,300 miles away from Colossae. He's in big trouble, and he ran a long way. And during the time that they were together, however Onesimus, the runaway slave, and Paul, the imprisoned preacher, however they came together, I believe it's God's providence Paul shared the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection with Onesimus, and Onesimus came to faith in Christ. He was converted. And as a new man, a new creature in Christ Jesus, he served Paul faithfully for some time as an assistant. I want us to stop here in thinking about all this 
and consider all of this from Onesimus' perspective. Onesimus is 1,300 miles away from all of his problems back in Colossae. He's got a new heart. He's got a new life. He's got a fresh start. He's got work to do in serving Paul that is fulfilling and meaningful. He could have left all of that trouble behind and simply moved forward in his newfound freedom, could he not? That wouldn't have been freedom at all, though, would it? After all, he had left a huge mess back in Colossae, and it was likely to catch up to him at some point. In fact, at any time, the trouble he had caused in Colossae could catch up to him. The bounty hunters who were always looking for runaway slaves, could show up and find him. Someone could recognize him and report him. At any moment, he could be dragged back to Colossae to answer for his rebellion. At some point, as newly converted Onesimus engaged with Paul, Paul told him, you got to go back. Onesimus, you, you have to go back to Colossae. You have to go back and make things right with Philemon. Because that's what you do when you're a new creature. That's what you do when Christ lives in you. You make it right. It's part of what's expected of the followers of Jesus. But Paul says, I'm not going to send you back alone. You need to go back to Colossae. You need to go back to Philemon. But I'm not going to send you back alone. I'm going to send our beloved brother Tychicus with you. He's a trusted brother. You've gotten to know him while you've been here in Rome. He's going to travel with you, and he'll have your back a little bit. And I'm going to write a letter to Philemon. But consider all this from Onesimus' perspective. He has run away, possibly stolen something, got 1,300 miles away, fresh start in a big city, and now, with new faith and a new identity in Jesus Christ, he's going to go back, not knowing what to expect knowing that every cultural expectation is that he will at best be beaten badly, but more likely be crucified. And he's got Tychicus and a letter from Paul, and he makes his way back on that 1,300-mile journey. I think that was the scariest 1,300-mile journey ever. But he does it in obedience to the Lord and as a picture of what it looks like to walk out this new faith in Jesus Christ. So that letter that Onesimus has in his hand is what we're going to study for the next six weeks or so. That letter will encourage and exhort Philemon, who has every right and every cultural expectation to crucify this wicked slave, it will encourage him to forgive his new brother and welcome him not just as a slave, but as a brother. We're going to read through this whole letter. It won't take long. And I want you to try to put yourself in one of the character's shoes, either in Onesimus' shoes. Put yourself in the shoes of the wicked slave who ran away and has now come back trying to make things right. Or put yourself in Philemon's shoes. You're a wealthy, influential Christ follower in this city, surrounded by a culture that would say, if you don't kill him, you're not a man. You can't be a man and a master and a leader and let your slave just run off and then come back. Put yourself in the shoes of Philemon or put yourself in the shoes of Paul. Paul, who's never been to Colossae, he probably doesn't know Philemon really well. He got saved under his preaching, but he's not from the city where he was preaching. 
and he's wading in to, to a very culturally charged situation. He's speaking about slavery and masters. He's wading into choppy waters at best. Try to put yourself in the shoes of Paul as he engages with this issue. Or put yourself in the shoes of the church. This is a very personal correspondence between Paul and Philemon. And yet it is addressed to Philemon, his wife, his son, and the whole church. That's an awkward business meeting. When when that thing is read, when when Paul basically says, Philemon, we got to talk. Come on the stage and we'll talk about it in front of all of these people. That is a really interesting part of this letter because it's not, it's not as if we ever just live out our Christianity in isolation or in private. There's never just an issue between me and you. All of those kind of issues affect the whole body. You're going to see that the whole body is brought into this and is observing and watching. What will, what will Philemon do? What will Onesimus do? We know that Onesimus made the trip because the letter gets there. But what will Philemon do? So try, as we read this, to consider it from one of those perspectives. And my guess is you will likely consider it from the perspective that most looks like your life right now. Like if, if, if you're the runaway slave, you're going to read it as the runaway slave. If you're the one who's been wronged, like Philemon, you're going to read it like that. If you're just the, the one that's kind of standing back and not really involved, but sort of involved by default, you're going to read it like that. There's a lot going on in this little letter is what I'm trying to show you. So read it with me, all of it. Philemon chapter 1, which you don't necessarily have to say because there's only one. Verse 1. Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Apphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. 
But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it, not to mention that you owe to me even your own life as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time, also prepare me a lodging, for I hope through your prayers I will be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, Jesus greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that over the next six or eight weeks, you will speak with power and authority into our lives through your word, through this short little letter, that we would learn what it looks like to be reconciled to you by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and what it looks like to be reconciled to one another by the same kind of grace. Teach us how to forgive Teach us how to repent. Teach us what restoration looks like for the glory of your great name. Amen. So this whole story about Philemon and Onesimus and Paul makes me think of another story that Jesus once told. Parable of the prodigal son. Are you familiar with the parable of the prodigal son? Raise your hand if you are. How many of you know what the word prodigal means? How many of you can give me a definition of the word prodigal? All right, look it up. Look it up right now. I, many of you can't. You want to say uh, somebody who went away and then came back? No, look it up. You guys all have phones. Look it up. Prodigal definition. Seriously. Close Snapchat and Instagram. When you get it, somebody say, what, it, what, it, what does it mean? What's prodigal mean? Spreading resources, spending resources freely, recklessly, even wastefully. Yeah? Wasteful, extravagant, lavish, maybe even. That's the picture we get. So the, and, and in the vernacular, it's come to mean one who goes away and then returns. But in, in, in actuality, that word means to be someone who spends freely, who gives like recklessly almost. And we definitely see that in this story. We see the reckless spending of the son who goes away and squanders all of his wealth. But Tim Keller has helped me see that we also see some prodigality, prodigalness. (laughs) We see the father also being prodigal in his actions. The son comes home and he doesn't treat him like a slave. Treats him as a beloved son. He is lavish in his grace. So I want to tell you that story because I want that story to kind of be floating around in your mind as we get ready to study through Philemon over the next few weeks. So this story is in Luke chapter 15. And in Luke chapter 15, Jesus is teaching a really interesting group of people. On the one hand, there are sinners and tax collectors, like notorious rebels in the crowd. On the other hand, there are uh, religious leaders 
righteous folks. Maybe even we would call them religious snobs. You guys lose every time, don't you? On this side. Sorry. Jesus is teaching this group. The religious snobs are not happy that he's spending so much time with the sinners and tax collectors. And Jesus begins to tell them stories. He tells them a story about a lost sheep. Then he tells them a story about a lost coin. And then he tells them a story about a man who had two sons. And one day, one of those sons came to him, the younger one, and he said, Dad, I want my inheritance now. And amazingly, surprisingly, the dad gives the son what he's asked for. He divides up the property, he divides up the money, and he gives the son his share of the inheritance. And the younger son immediately hits the road for a faraway land. And when he gets to that faraway land, he lives it up. He is involved in all kinds of what the Bible says, loose living. He parties it up with women, that's what his older brother says at least, probably drugs and alcohol, and he spends all of his inheritance in that faraway land, and he finds himself completely broke. So he gets a job. After all of this season of partying and loose living, he gets a job feeding pigs. And he's so broke, and he's so hungry, that one day when he's out feeding the pigs, he is tempted to eat the very slop that he's feeding to the pigs. But he comes to his senses. In that lowest place, he comes to his senses and he says, even the slaves at my dad's house have food to eat. I know what I'll do. I'll go back to my dad's house and I will ask to be a slave. I'm no longer worthy to be his son because of the way I've treated him, but I will go back and I will ask to be a slave. So that son who ran so far away starts his way back home. I believe he's memorizing and practicing this speech that he's going to deliver to his dad as he makes his way back home. And as he makes his way back home, his dad sees him coming from a long way off. And his dad runs out to him. And he hugs him. And he kisses him. And he weeps on him. And he starts into the speech, Dad, I'm not worthy to be your son because the way I've treated you, I just want to be a slave in your house and serve you for the rest of my life. But the dad is not going to hear any of that. The dad calls a slave, and he says, bring this boy some clothes, and bring this boy some shoes, and bring him a ring, and thaw out some steaks, like the good ones, the ribeyes and the fillets, and fire up the grill, because tonight we celebrate, because this son of mine was dead, and he's back to life. What was lost has been found, and we must celebrate. Well, big brother is out in the field, like he's always been, working, and he hears all of this commotion going on up at the house. And so he asks one of the slaves, what's going on? And the slave says, have you heard? Your brother's back, and your dad is celebrating. Well, this makes big brother angry. He doesn't like this, and he refuses to go inside. So dad comes out to big brother. He says, what's going on? You need to come in. We need to celebrate. Big brother says, I have always been here with you. I have always been here with you, and I have served you in every possible way, and you've never even given me a goat to have a little party with my friends. And now this son of yours who went off and spent all your money on prostitutes, he's back, and you're going bananas. And the dad says, son, you've always been with me, and everything I have is yours. we got to celebrate, though. Because your brother was dead, and now he lives. He was lost and has been found. We must celebrate. And that's the end of the story. He leaves it hanging. We don't know if big brother goes in the house or not. 
That's not the point. Because remember who he's talking to? He's talking to some sinners and tax collectors. He's talking to some religious snobs who think they don't need any help. Drops this bomb that just destroys all of them, right? Here are the three applications I want to leave with you today. As we have the prodigal son story bouncing around in our head, and we have kind of the high-altitude flyover of Philemon kind of bouncing around, and we're getting ready to dive into it, three things that I want you to see today. Number one, God forgives prodigally, generously, lavishly, big-time forgiveness. We, we, don't, we don't come back to him saying, Dad, I just want to be a slave in your house. And he says, yeah, you can have the bottom bunk. We come to him and we say, Dad, I don't deserve to be your son. I, don't, I only deserve to be a slave. I don't even deserve that. And he says, welcome home, son. Get the robe, get the ring, get the sandals, get the stakes. Our God forgives lavishly, generously. It would get me in trouble in some circles to say recklessly. He forgives. Big time forgiveness. So, repent and believe. I'm inviting you today to come home and be amazed at the response of the Father. Be amazed as he calls out for rings and robes and sandals. Come to your senses today. Walk home in humility and brokenness. Not with a puffed out chest coming home to get something that you think you deserve but with humility and brokenness, come home and watch the Father run to you and embrace you and watch all of heaven celebrate because what was dead is now alive and what was lost has been found. That's what we're talking about today. It's the picture that informs all of this instruction to Philemon. Philemon has experienced that. Philemon has been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He has gone to the Father, and the Father has said, Welcome home, son. Let's celebrate, because you were dead and now you're alive. And in that context, he is being called to respond similarly to Onesimus. So application number one, God forgives prodigally. Come to your senses and walk home. Watch the Father run. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And experience the prodigal forgiveness of our Heavenly Father. Number two, if you've experienced that prodigal forgiveness, you must forgive prodigally. You've experienced this kind of forgiveness, you must forgive this way. We who have been forgiven much must forgive much. We cannot be stingy with forgiveness. Cannot be stingy with forgiveness. Jesus is asked one time, should I, should I forgive my brother seven times? Like, no, 70 times seven. That's prodigal forgiveness. It's generous, lavish forgiveness. And that's what we've been called to. So, when you find yourself in the position of Philemon, you will. Find yourself in the position of Philemon. Your runaway slave stole from you, embarrassed you, comes back, given. Why? Because you're a runaway slave too. 
You're the runaway slave too, and you have been forgiven. And it doesn't make any sense to be forgiven and then stingy. Application number two, we must forgive prodigally. And application number three, we must repent actively. It just doesn't work for Onesimus to stay in Rome. It just doesn't work for Onesimus to have done all of that back in Colossae and stay in Rome. And when we're Onesimus, we need to go back. Part of what repentance looks like, repent actively. Jesus talks about a scenario where if you find yourself on your way to the Offer a sacrifice, and then remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your sacrifice on the altar. Go make it right with your brother, and then come offer the sacrifice, right? You realize that is Onesimus. He can't just go on living and serving while he's got this beef with the brother that he caused. Philemon has something against Onesimus because Onesimus ran away and stole something from him. Onesimus did him wrong. And so Paul says to Onesimus, you got to go back. And he does. That's crazy, isn't it? It's not so crazy that Paul would say, you need to go back. It is crazy that he goes back. And that's what we're called to. That's what active repentance looks like. Active repentance is not Onesimus sitting in Rome saying, man, I'm really sorry for what I did back in Colossae. Active repentance is going back to Colossae, not knowing what will happen. Not knowing that Philemon is also being taught that in Christ, we don't hold this stuff against each other. Because of Jesus, everything has changed. Because he's been forgiven, he must forgive. So when you find yourself in the position of Onesimus, repent. Walk the uncertain road back to the one you have offended. Trust the Lord. What what would have happened? Onesimus goes back to Philemon. Philemon crucifies him. Like everyone expects, Onesimus goes back. Philemon, I'm sorry for what I've done. I don't want to hear it. To the cross with you. You know what happens then? Onesimus goes to heaven. He goes to heaven to the reward that is his because of Christ. He can't lose. So he is obedient. Let's stand together and pray. Father, thank you for the way you forgive. Generously, lavishly, you you forgive big time. Prodigal forgiveness is your nature. I pray that you will open the eyes of men and women and boys and girls to that reality. That you would cause them to come to their senses. That you would turn them so that they come home in humility and brokenness not presuming, but begging. Father, I pray that you will run and embrace and celebrate. God, I pray that you give men and women and boys and girls repentance to turn away from their sin, faith to trust in Jesus Christ. You will raise the dead Give hope. Father, I pray for those of us who, who have been saved, 
we belong to you. We've been forgiven. Teach us to forgive like you do. When we find ourselves in the position of Philemon, teach us to forgive big time, generously, lavishly, prodigally to forgive. And teach us to repent actively when we find ourselves in the position of Onesimus. Teach us to turn and walk the uncertain road back to the one we have offended. To leave our gift on the altar and make it right with our brother. Thank you that when we walk that lonely, scary road, we don't walk it alone. You are with us, powering, encouraging, delighting in obedience. There are a million ways to respond to this today. Help us to be obedient to you in Christ's name.